0: Hey Meadow is an associate professor of sociology at Columbia University, where she teaches courses on gender and sexuality, queer theory, qualitative methodology, law, and the analytics of risk and uncertainty. Meadow's published work focuses on a broad range of issues, including the emergence of the transgender child as a social category, the international politics of family diversity the creation and maintenance of legal gender classifications, and newer work on the ways individuals negotiate risk in intimate relationships. Meadow is the author of Trans Kids, Being Gendered in the 21st Century, and the co-editor of the volume, Other Please Specify, Queer Methods in Sociology. Hey Meadow, welcome to The Creative Process. Thanks so much for
1: having me.
2: So uh, your book, Trans Kids, Being Gendered in the 21st Century, really takes in a wide variety of regions and experiences. Just tell us first, how did you come to write it and why did you decide now was the time?
1: So I have been involved in LGBT politics since I was in college and, in fact, moved down to New York City so that I could become more politically involved. And at the time, trans politics was really about access to health care, about employment, non-discrimination and mostly focused on adults. And when I was in grad school and doing some work on legal gender classifications, which were a big issue that trans folks were focusing on at the time, um, I happened to go to a conference called Creating Change, which is the largest LGBT nonprofit conference in the country. And there I met a gentleman who was part of a, a workshop that I was presenting at. And over lunch, I asked him what he did for a living. And he told me he was trans and he worked for an organization that helped young children that were transitioning in schools. And I was surprised to hear that. I said, well, how often is that happening? And he said, you know, it's that it was fairly frequent. And that was not something that I was aware of. So when I came out and when I began my political life, being trans was a thing you did when you were an adult and out of your parents' house. And he told me that this was happening uh, more and more frequently. And so I asked if anyone had done research on it and he said, not really. And I got a plane ticket for the next week, flew across the country and shadowed him as he transitioned a um, middle schooler in a, a fairly you know, a rough charter school on the outskirts of a major city. And what I learned when I spoke with the kid, the kid's parents, the teachers, the staff, the ED of the organization, was that there was a universe of work being done by the parents of trans kids that I was unfamiliar with. And what began as an article quickly became a dissertation and the book. And it was right at the moment when trans kids became a media presence. So I happened to just capture that moment where everybody became aware that this was something that was happening. Um, And that was just good fortune.
2: Well, it's very uh, relevant. And I think when anything becomes visible, as you say, um, there's the backlash, the lack of understanding. And I think that your book really helps fill in those gaps. But for those who are still hesitant, or I think a lot of parents are also just confused about parenting, even, you know, not trans kids, but just parenting is confusing and frightening. So what are some of those things that you discovered that help illuminate for those who might feel that they have a young trans person in their life
1: yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm also the parent of a nine-year-old, so I have, um, you know, sort of experience on both sides of this. And I would say that the thing that I learned that really was the most profound was the ways in which children come to be in relation to others. And not just trans kids, but all kids. Like the possibilities for who individual children can be are determined by what is recognized by the adults around them. And oftentimes, children, you know, like young adults as well, are in a process of becoming, of trying things on, of figuring things out. And I think that it's very easy to respond with panic when you have a child that's doing something really unexpected. And what the book turned out to really revolve around was individual parents' processes of coming to understand. You know, is my kid actually trans? Are they, I mean, we didn't use the term non binary at the time the research was done. That's like really a last five years kind of thing. Um, and the book came out in 2018. But, you know, I called them gender non conforming kids, right? But they were similarly sort of in between male and female um, cat- categories and identifications. You know, is that where the kid is going to rest? How are we going to deal with puberty, peer relationships, sexuality? extended family, community, social networks, you know, and all of that set the terms by which children could come into being particular kinds of people. And I think that that's true for all of us that are raising young people, you know, trying to develop their identities and sense of place in the world.
2: And. On the other side of it, because yes, we're we're all always in a state of becoming. and you know, we've had conversations, of course, with neuroscientists and and that uh, neuroplasticity that doesn't settle in. So the air of caution around it is how do you know and when? and and so, what were your findings?
1: I found that there were different kinds of knowing and different times of knowing. So there are some children that are consistently, and persistently trans-identified. So kids who from the time they are able to articulate a self, say, I am a girl or I am a boy, and that is really consistent over time. That kind of categorical self-understanding can happen at any time, but there are some predictable periods. So for example, at the immersion of language is one time when kids start saying, I wanna play with that or I'm a girl. And even before that, there's some kids at the earliest ages exhibit distress over clothing, and it takes parents a while to figure out what it's about until the kid has language. Another time that, that this sort of thing commonly happens is at the onset of puberty. Bodies are changing, hormones are changing. Kids that lived even fairly traditionally gendered early childhoods can sometimes quite quickly become aware that something is very different. And that can feel very surprising to parents. And I'm actually working on a project right now to look a little bit more closely at these teenagers that are coming out to the surprise of parents and communities, the kinds of kids that are sort of animating political disputes right now to see really what's happening from the perspectives of the kids. But those are the two times in childhood when coming out is the most common. Now, I also met many families whose children kind of came out in between those two periods of time. So around nine or 10, when identity development is starting to happen, you know, I see this in my own, you know, very gender conforming child, you know, that she's at, at almost 10 sort of interested in fashion for the first time and gender is a big part of that. So while there is no kind of one size fits all story, there are plenty of times when it it kind of like clusters of activity. And some kids don't come out as trans, they come out as wanting to begin a process of exploration around gender, wanting to sort of bend things a little bit or begin to present themselves in slightly different ways without a concrete cross-identification. So it's really a pretty diverse range of phenomena.
0: Thanks, that was really informative, I think. You mentioned earlier uh, being involved in politics at, your, at the beginning of your research, and I know you have a background in law, and I was wondering how that influenced your work and the way that you think and write about transgender issues. And then also, how do you think politics and social science overlap for you as a sociologist?
1: Those are uh, two very good questions, and they're related and they're also a little bit different What I will say is that becoming an ethnographer was a process of unbecoming a lawyer. So I went into graduate school really thinking that I was going to be a law and society scholar. And the first uh, academic publication I had was an analysis of legal gender determinations in cases where that was unclear, in cases where people approached the state and said, you know, this is who I am. And the only evidence I have for that is that I'm telling you that this is who I am. And in what circumstances can the law recognize people. I think that I wrote that way because recognition was the basis for being a particular kind of person in culture. And I didn't quite know that at the time. But my political activity, you know, really predated even law school. I mean, I think I went to law school because I cared about social justice. And when I decided that what I really wanted was an academic life, I still cared about social justice, but the way that my mind works is that I become very interested in the moments where people are relating to one another on a pretty intimate level. Parents and children, families, lovers, that's where my brain lights up. And so when I began studying the communities that formed the basis for this book, and talking with parents, it became very clear to me that the same kinds of analyses that I was using for law were also really revealing of like, how does a parent that knows nothing about gender in the way that, you know, I now understand it, but has a kid that's doing and saying really surprising things, comes to understand gender differently than they ever had. How do they communicate it with people that are, you know, have some antipathy to trans people or who are transphobic or who are, you know, deeply religiously affiliated and kind of just just can't build that into their worldview. And how does that affect what becomes possible for a child to say or do, right? Um, And so all of those things, to my mind, influence each other. And while I'm not a lawyer anymore, I think that the kind of logical analysis that that lawyers are taught still is sort of in the background there somewhere. I'm not really sure how.
2: Yeah. So you address the fact that how, how parents come to understand gender in a way that they hadn't understood it before. And so it's really beautiful that sense of understanding in, in communities where you wouldn't e- expect to have that kind of openness. So tell us some of those stories.
1: Well I interviewed a family who lived in a very religious community. Their children went to a Christian preschool affiliated with the family's church. And they had six boys, uh, five of whom were very, what sociologists would call hegemonically masculine, you know, and the smallest one who liked to wear his mother's shoes and tell everyone that he was a girl and then at a certain point the older brothers the dad kind of began to feel uncomfortable with this child's feminine presentation and were kind of trying to encourage the child to sort of do more masculine things to play sports and the child's mother began sort of having they used to have what they called secret girl time where she would allow the child who now goes by Ashley and lives as a girl to dress as a girl, they would do pretend play where Ashley could be you know the princess or the mother or the the feminine of center character and there was one day when Ashley came up to her mother before school and asked for a porter, and her mother said, "Why?" and she said, "Well, there's a wishing well on the way to school, and i I want to." Put the quarter in so that i can wish to be a girl and the way that charlotte ashley's mother described that moment to me was like something clicked so all of these requests for girls toys all of the requests for different kind of more gender neutral clothing, all of the conflict with ashley's father and older siblings and the secret girl time like charlotte said this was something about who she is It's not just a set of behaviors. It's not a phase. Like this child ardently wished that her outside reality could reflect her inside reality. And that was the moment that Charlotte sat down with her husband Damien and and began kind of talking about how they were going to approach this. And it became a very difficult series of negotiations with the preschool director and the child eventually had to leave that school and a variety of other things happened within the family and within that community. But the acceptance of their church community was only one layer of a story that's about a parenting relationship, right? And what is possible between a parent and a child. And I will say that one of the things that I've found is that the parent-child relationship is the strongest predictor of what's really possible for kids and how happy they're going to be. And I met children in my research who had to run in the middle of the night out of communities after receiving death threats because the child was trans. And the kid was doing okay because the parent was like, I am going to take you and run. And that's what we're going to do. The parent wasn't so okay, but the child felt loved and supported. And so some communities can move with a family and some can't. But the thing that that makes identity possible is the love and support of the parent. In your introduction of your book, you talked about how while doing
0: your research, you were both a researcher and a subject of study, kind of risk both having a gaze on others and, and receiving a gaze. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what those observations meant for you in your research and how you incorporated them into your book.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important part of the book. Um, And in, you know, in the beginning of the book, I tell a story about sitting in a conference lobby with a psychologist that I was interviewing who was fairly controversial um, for a variety of reasons you can read about in the book. But I was asking him, he'd had a very long career working with trans youth. um, And in fact, was the first psychologist in North America to prescribe puberty blockers for trans adolescents. And then just, you know, 15 years later had his clinic closed because of allegations that he was providing behavior modification therapy to kids, trying to get them to not be trans. And he's a complicated character that I, I follow through the book, but as we were talking and I was asking him about his decades of practice from time to time, he would pick up a digital camera and show me a picture of someone who had been in his care. And this is kind of like a very antiquated practice that psychiatrists used to do. I mean, starting you know, at, at the advent of, of camera technology. And he would show me these pictures as if looking at that person was supposed to tell me something that I couldn't know if I didn't see them. And I sort of asked him about that, but I, you know, my brain wasn't quick enough to really understand what was happening in the moment until we finished the interview and I turned off my recording device And he picked up the camera again and showed me a couple more pictures. And then he asked if he could take my picture. And I asked, well, why do you want to do that? And he said, I just like taking pictures. And in that moment, apart from just feeling a kind of intense panic that a field worker often feels when confronted with a situation that is both unexpected and that seems consequential. Like I knew that how I answered that question would matter for what our relationship looked like going forward. And then I found myself kind of cataloging what I was wearing, what my haircut looked like, you know, and wondering sort of what I would be an example of for someone he was in a future conversation with, right? And I, I call that the moment that we realized that we were studying each other, right? Or that I realized that he was also studying me back. People will often ask me questions about my identity. And I have a coda at the end of the first chapter in which I talk about the reasons why I don't answer the question of whether I myself am trans in the book. And part of why is, and and there's a longer explanation to this, is that part of what I think is really fascinating about this cultural moment is that we are all asking each other questions about gender. We're all looking at each other to try and figure out our gender identities, our sexual orientations, the kind of categories of masculinity or femininity we embody with a sense that we will then know something that we didn't know beforehand if only the person will answer the question. And I found that it was much more interesting to see what other people thought than to impose my self-definition on someone else's sense of the validity of what I'm saying or, or my own political perspective. So it tends to be a question that I don't answer Not because I feel self conscious about what my answer would be, but because I wonder what problem that solves. Right. So if I say I'm trans, then I become a political ally to these kids just because my survival and their survival are the same thing. Um, And if I say I'm not trans, then I'm disidentifying with them in order to kind of claim some kind of objectivity or authority. And at the end of the day, I think what's the success or failure of the book rests on whether you read it and the explanations seem plausible and the arguments seem humane. And if those two things are true, then my identity doesn't matter. But I do tell a lot of stories about how people interacted with me and the expectations they had of me based on what I looked like or based on what they thought my identity would be.
2: I think that it's important to know why a subject is important to people. And you clearly are. We cannot be AI. We, we are people in this world. So,
0: yeah. Just with all of the proposed laws coming out and measures targeting trans youth recently, I was wondering what you attribute all of these things to
1: and how we might be able to confront what's going on. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that trans kids are really politically useful for conservatives. So I think very little of what's going on right now has anything to do with trans youth. There was a governor of one of the states that had one of the ballot measures to restrict participation in sports. And in a press conference, and I'm just blanking on the governor's name or even what state it is now because I'm so kind of overwhelmed by the number of these bills, but he acknowledged not knowing of a single case of a trans athlete in his state that was relevant to this bill that he had proposed. So there is no actual concrete problem that needs to be solved in his state. And yet the best way to mobilize political support among conservatives is to position oneself as a defender of traditional gender values, right? Now it becomes more complicated with the with the sets of laws that are around medical care, because I think, first of all, most people know very little about what kinds of medical decisions are made on behalf of trans youth. But what they do think they know is that these treatments are new, which is not true. They've been done since the 70s. That they are dangerous, which is not true. They're actually quite safe and quite time tested, and that they're done quickly and without a lot of oversight. This is also not true. So, I don't know a single medical provider that's working with trans youth that doesn't have kids go through an extensive amount of counseling to come to a decision that is made by the child, the child's parent, and a team of medical experts around the availability of medical transition. For high school age trans youth. And so these misconceptions seem to be outside of the realm of what people are actually debating. It's just, are we going to quote unquote mutilate these kids? Or are we going to, you know, say that transness writ large is a thing that they can do when they're adults? And despite the fact that every major Medical Governing Board in the country has publicly stated that the standards of care for trans youth are appropriate and that they actually lead to better physical and psychological outcomes than delaying transition. This has become a political flashpoint and it's a really easy way because they're children and so adults feel both anxious and responsible for them. Um, It becomes a really easy thing to focus on in States where somebody feels that their political campaign needs a little kit. And so I think that's why this is happening. And I do think that that you're right, that there that there is some sense of like things become more socially acceptable, and then there's a backlash. And I think that that's part of the story also. But we live in a culture where politics is animated by fear, and children are a great thing to be afraid about, right? because we we feel so protective of them. So that's my sense of what's going on. And I think it's a pretty terrifying time to be LGBT in general. I mean, the abrogation of fundamental civil rights that's happening across the country is quite stunning. But, you know, as we watch Roe v. Wade about to fall, I think civil rights writ large are in in real danger and and trans views are just one piece of that larger, very, very terrifying puzzle
0: creators I'm Bela Unger an anthropology major at Columbia University as well as an associate producer at the creative process I'm going to be honest that this interlude was really difficult to write I didn't know how to comment on a topic that seems both so important and pressing as well as personal as Tay said it is very scary to be LGBTQ right now This is true, and it feels like nothing I say will be enough to express these fears and the real effects that the laws and motions that are being brought forward all across the U.S. right now will have on countless people. Some of the effects are not visible to us yet, but I was reminded last night by a friend of what Stacey Ann Chin said so eloquently, that all oppression is connected. When Roe v. Wade is attacked, it is not only an attack on women's bodies, but an attack on all bodies, and the personal choices we make about them. With that said, I'd like to play a song that I produced which has given me solace in this time. Music for me is an escape, as well as an outlet, for the things I find difficult to express with words. The song that I will play is a Yiddish song entitled Die Vet Vett which means the sun will be setting. The song speaks to the cyclical nature of life. The lyrics say, The sun will be setting behind the mountain. In silence approaching, then love will come softly. To sorrow that sits on a golden stone and weeps for itself alone. Love Hope you've enjoyed this song. If you'd like to hear more, you can visit my bandcamp at bandcamp.com slash Bela. Now back to the interview. Could you go into a little bit more
2: detail, update the standards of care, just what that process is?
1: Sure. I'll clear up a couple of what I think are the most common misconceptions. There is no medical transition before puberty. Before puberty, we're talking about sneakers and winter coats. We're talking about, you know, therapy to help a kid and parents adjust and figure out what the child's identity is, but we're ultimately just talking about names and clothing and toys. When a child begins to go through puberty and reaches what's called tannered stage two of puberty and the body is changing, families have to make a decision and, that's an, and it's an incredibly consequential decision. Does the child go through their natal puberty, developing secondary sex characteristics that will have to be undone by surgery or will follow them for the rest of their lives, right? So once um, an assigned male child goes through puberty and their voice drops, it's dropped for good. Or does the family pause puberty with something called a hormone blocker, hormone antagonist, which we've been using since the 1970s, For precocious puberty. So for children who go into puberty um, unusually early, which can have a bunch of social and bodily side effects. Do we use those to either buy the child time to figure out what they ultimately want, or to age a little bit and then be given hormone replacement therapy so they can they can transition and go through a puberty that's consistent with their gender identity? So what we have are trans kids who are going through puberty at the same time as other children, most doctors believe that the best course of action is to pause puberty until the child is about 16. Now, some people say, if you have a kid who's been consistently and persistently trans since the age of three, what is the point of having them wait until they're 16 to be the last kid in their school to go through puberty, right? Because you know with with trans youth, doing nothing is always doing something. You know you don't actually get to just say no thank you to puberty and stay prepubescent. So some decisions have to be made at every point along this process. Do you decide to put a child on blockers at Tanner stage two? If the answer is yes, at what point do you make a decision about which puberty they're going to go through? right? And these are the questions that are, discussed by all of the adults in a child's life who know them well, who know what other intersecting mental health issues they might have, who know what their social experiences are, who understand their relationship to body image, to the the problems that they're having either because of gender or outside of gender, and a team of experts and adults who love that child collectively decide what the right path is and that is the appropriate approach to care for trans youth and you know people who are saying that this is happening quickly or thoughtlessly are are quite incorrect so
0: i was wondering i think you talked about this a little bit at the beginning but what do you think is significant about children's experiences and why do you focus so much on children rather than looking at adults and and their experiences what do you think we can learn from from children that we can't learn from learning
1: about trans adults such an interesting question particularly because while the book is about trans kids the book the book really focuses on the action of the adults around kids because adults are as i said before i think you know adults are the people who set the terms by which children's lives happen And so in a way, a child's relationship to gender is fairly simple. They assert an identity or they assert a set of desires for ways of relating to other people or specific material uh, objects or ways of presenting their bodies. And then adults have to make sense of it and decide what they're going to permit and what they're going to prohibit. And so looking at trans kids, is really a wonderful way to think about what we believe is possible. So trans adults get to, or adults in general, get to make claims on the world about identity and about things that they want. And then you know maybe people recognize them, maybe they don't. Maybe they get to have the things they want, maybe they don't. Maybe terrible things happen to them, maybe they don't. But we don't feel like we have to decide for adults who they are. It's very different with children right? We believe that it is our responsibility as adults to decide who children can be and what they can have. And so that's really where our cultural ideas about gender are their most obvious.
2: And in terms of in the education system, I mean, I think that your your book introducing this and sharing it with teachers and parents, that's great. I think that there's a controversy now in terms of how how open we should be in terms of sharing this information
1: with all youth. Yes. Yeah. I think that we have to think about what the anxiety is, right? So the idea that it's a question whether we tell youth that this is a way people can be, right? The only reason to not tell kids that some people are trans is if we believe that this is a bad outcome and we don't want children to end up that way. So we don't even want to present it to them as an option. If you believe that trans is just one of the many ways that people can be and that that kind of difference is benign, there's no reason not to introduce it to kids, right? And so you can say the same thing about homosexuality, right? You can say the same thing about different religious practices. You can say the same thing about almost any form of difference that we can discuss as either equally valuable or not as valuable as whatever the normative category is. My perspective, both personally and intellectually, is that trans is a perfectly fine way to be. And so for children who are struggling with their gender silently inside themselves what they stand to gain from being in an educational environment in which they are possible is so much greater than any confusion or disruption that information can provide. You know, imagine growing up as a child who feels trans and never knowing that there are tens of thousands of people like you all around. And so you feel as if you are the only one and you know because kids have the internet they will eventually learn that in fact they aren't alone but then they look around at surrounding communities and say but that's impossible for me and that's impossible here and no one who loves me will love me if i tell them this thing about myself that is incredibly psychologically damaging and we have a lot of evidence to support that claim that children who are facilitated in expressing their gender nonconforming identities are healthier and happier than children who don't have those opportunities.
2: Yeah, I think that, of course, we want to have this atmosphere of acceptance and not having a young person afraid to say who they are. And it's just threading that fine line between, because I think that a lot of uh, young people are also, they might experience crippling shyness, or they might experience, they think that they're the only person going through, like, you, you know, we're we're still forming ourselves. We don't have all the the words. And so I think that some parents do have, or some educators have a fear of influencing outcomes. I think that, of course, we should have stories and have a kind of balance because as I reflect on it, I, I never heard, I can't remember being exposed to any stories about trans experiences when I was young, I but I, I never was exposed to that.
1: No, we weren't. But I do think that, you know, there are also different ways of thinking about this. One is about trans stories, like here's a book with a trans character in it. Another is statements that are consistent with you know what feminists have been saying for decades, which is there are a lot of different ways for girls to be. There are a lot of different ways for boys to be. And then simply just adding onto the end of that. And then there are some people who don't feel like a girl or a boy, or some people who are assigned one gender category at birth and feel like a different one. And that is also a fine way to be. Right. So the idea that everyone who is not trans is somehow in the same category around gender normativity is is pretty untrue. Like, so, you know, my mother never wears a dress. She's pretty normatively feminine in a lot of ways, but she's never going to put a skirt on. And, you know, when she was growing up, girls were not allowed to wear pants to school. And she felt like, but I want to run around and this is impractical, right? So nobody who looks at my mother would think that she was gender nonconforming. She wears red lipstick every day and has her nails done and has beautiful hair and, and the whole nine yards. But in her social context growing up, the fact that she didn't want to wear a skirt was abnormal. So my mother is not trans and I'm not suggesting that that is the same category of experience, but I'm saying that this is. These are points on a line. And part of what I think is important for young people to know is that there are a lot of different ways to embody different gender categories. And that being in a context in which your value is not tied to making very specific decisions about your gender is a healthier context overall. I was
0: wondering if you wanted to talk a bit about your upcoming research. I know you're working on a new book. I don't know what it's called or if you have a title yet, but.
1: Um, I don't have a title for the book yet, but I'm an ethnographer and I follow communities of people that are doing things that I think are interesting, that are about intimacy and interrelationship. And so my new book is actually about sexuality and not gender and power and social difference. And I spent two years before COVID, or really a year and a half, following two different groups of people who practice what we colloquially think of as BDSM. So people that are interested in playing with power dynamics in their erotic or romantic lives. And that can look a couple of different ways The either people who engage in specific kinds of sexual practices that are about power, or people who organize their relationships around explicit and negotiated power differentials. And so the book is both about what that world looks like and also the kinds of lessons that we can learn about social difference and about racial difference, gender difference, class difference, age difference from people that really explicitly negotiate power, authority, and control in their most intimate connections to other people. And in this moment where I think, you know, sexual politics is so fraught Racial politics is so fraught. We really need better language for power than we have. And I began to find some of it there and then not in an uncomplicated way, but I'm currently in the middle of writing the book and kind of thinking through, you know, what, what lessons we can extract from those communities, but that's a very different topic for sure.
2: It's interesting that as we think about, you know, Me Too, and there's a lot of fear. I don't know how that's changed the BDSM community or whether people are joining in greater numbers because they feel there's this kind of very politically correct spaces and they need to have outlets.
1: Oh, I wouldn't set up the practitioners that I met as being a place outside of Me Too. I think that it is a community that both has had its own Me Too struggles so its own sense that there are people within the community that have violated the consent of other people or violated positions of power. For sure, that's been worked out on a on a on the level of like organized groups. And BDSM is organized around consent, varied consent practices that are pretty articulate. And so I would say that it's a space that has been reckoning with issues of power and consent for a lot longer than the rest of us had. In terms of political correctness, I mean that's a complicated question, and I'm not really sure, because I think that when we say politically correct, what we tend to mean is like somebody who's towing the liberal party line, right, about something and and without a whole lot of substance beneath it. And so people who want to escape political correctness want to get away from a surface narrative to do something that might not be acceptable to other people. And I think that BDSM is definitely not acceptable to a lot of people as a set of sexual practices, but it is certainly not surface. It's not an escape from a kind of very careful attention to power. It's, it's quite the opposite. It's going right for some of the most complicated ways of relating interpersonally that there are. And so I wouldn't, so, it, so it's, a, it's kind of a complicated. I mean, it's a very interesting question, but I, I, I think it's not the neatest match just in the sense that, and also, you know, it's not a monolithic community. So, you know, people ask me questions all the time about parents of trans kids and who are the most supportive and who are the best parents. And, you know, any community of people has people in it that are incredibly emotionally intelligent and people that are not that emotionally intelligent. And that's true for the communities of parents supporting trans youth. It's also true for BDSM practitioners and people at the grocery store and college professors and podcast hosts and all all communities of people, right, have different people within them, some of whom are more able to attune to the subjectivities of others than other people in that same community. And that is true in every place that I've studied. What that looks like is always an interesting reflection on the community itself and its norms.
2: And so tell us, what are some of the norms within the BDSM uh, community? Because it's, it's
1: mysterious for us. But it really depends on what kind of a space you're going into. But uh, I'll give you, I'll give you a quick rundown on different versions of consent in that culture, because I think that we tend to think of consent as a, I ask you if you want to do something, you say yes or no, and then that's the end of the consent conversation. And it presumes a number of things. And many, many people have written about this. Joseph Fischel has a couple of really beautiful books on consent. Seamus Kahn and Jennifer Hirsch have written about campus sexual cultures and have written some very beautiful things about consent from a sociological perspective. But we tend to think that if you say yes to something, let's say, you know, you and I are going to have sex, you say yes, we go to my dorm room, you've consented. And so everything that follows is going to be cool. But then we end up with a circumstance in which sometimes people walk away from something like that feeling violated. And we have to really think about why. So there are really three models of consent in BDSM worlds. The first one, which is called SSC or safe, sane and consensual, works kind of like what I just described. You and I make an agreement about what we're gonna do. We go into a room and we do it. The idea is that we're gonna, whatever we're gonna do is gonna be safe in the sense that we're not gonna hurt you permanently Uh, It's going to be sane in the sense that a reasonable person wouldn't think what we're doing is crazy, and you've consented to it. And that looks like the kind of consent that we expect on, you know, a first date. But what we know about BDSM sexuality or experimental sexuality, or really a lot of sexuality, is that we can't always predict how things are going to go for us. We can't always predict that we're going to like the thing we've agreed to. We can't always predict that we're not going to want to do something we never agreed to in the middle of sex. We can't predict whether something we've done a hundred times and has been fun this time won't be and we're not going to want to stop. So there's a second model of consent called risk-aware consensual kink that acknowledges that there's always a risk inherent in engaging erotically with another person, that at some point during the encounter, something unexpected could happen. You could be pulled across a limit. You could encounter something traumatic from your past that you didn't think would come up in this context. The person you're with could make a mistake and hurt you by accident. I mean, how many stories have you heard of friends who've had a bookcase fall on them during sex, right? Like sometimes you get hurt and it's not intentional, but it happened. And so there's an idea of consent that's about kind of going in with a sense of what you're risking. And then there's a third kind that I think is probably the most outside of the way we typically think about consent, and that is called consensual non-consent. So in the end, it's a little, I know, it's a little serpentine, the logic, but sometimes the experience that someone most wants is to have something happen to them that they don't want and to have an experience of having a limit violated. Now, there are two ways to look at this. One is that this is really risk-aware, consensual kink. So if I say, I want you to abduct me, right? I want to be walking down the street and I want you to pull up in a van. This is a pretty extreme example. Throw a bag over my head. I want you to be wearing a ski mask or I want you to have someone else do it. I want to have an experience what it would be like to have something terrifying happen to me. You could say, well, that's risk-aware, consensual kink because you have agreed to the thing before it's happened. But what if I were to say, I want you to do something that you know I find scary. I don't want to know what it is and I don't want to know when it's going to happen. Or I give you permission in the context of a longer term relationship to do things I don't like whenever you want. Right? We can step outside of the framework of having an idea of what the experience might be and and creating a scenario that's impossible to consent to. And that, that can sometimes be the thing that somebody wants to experience. And I think that's the part that's the hardest for people to understand, particularly because, I mean, just speaking, you know, from let's say, for the, from the perspective of women who, you know, conventionally attractive feminine women who walk through the world getting sexual attention they don't work constantly and having that be a defining feature of what it means to be a woman in this culture is to be hypersexualized in non consensual ways constantly. It can be hard to understand inviting that kind of experience. But people in this community have thought a lot about this and created kind of a way, a a very articulate language for thinking about the very, very diverse ways that we can relate erotically to one another and and what we can learn from them. So that's an example of of sets of norms. I don't know if it's really norms, but they're, they're concepts that structure action. And then there are norms in place settings where people are are doing BDSM scenes kind of in semi-private spaces that are around, like, don't touch anyone without their permission. You know, stuff that like going to your local college bar on a Saturday night, you can't assume, right? Like you can assume you're going to be touched without your consent, or at least that's what a lot of my undergraduates report to me, that in straight spaces, women are just used to being touched without their consent by men. That would never happen in a BDSM space without a very quick reaction from who's ever running the space. That's unacceptable. So there are some norms that are, that are even more rigid than in the general culture and some that are far more permissive.
2: Yeah, it's strange that, and yet one is open to like, violence, but not the casual touch of the knee on the shoulder that one gets all the time. So I was wondering, and I don't know if you could really have data on this, but you know, as you see our changing political climate and we see, you know, our lives have been transformed in terms of our curated digital lives. I was wondering, how is the BDS um, community like a mirror to these transformations?
1: hmm That's a really interesting question. I think there are two different ways I can immediately think to answer it. One is on the structural level where the kinds of conversations that are happening about racial diversity are happening in the organizations that anchor BDSM worlds as well. So some of the major events have transitioned to POC leadership. There's a lot of creation of specific networking spaces for people of color, a lot of conversation in groups about how to orient to this political moment, how to see sexual freedom as part of a larger project politically. And so on a, on a structural level, I think you know, had to deal with, with consent violations among you know, people in the community who have status, generational differences in approaching all of these things. And I think that that mirrors a lot of the conversations that are happening in political communities and educational organizations all over the country. Um, So those things look very similar. I think that the thing that I write about with regard to BDSM is, is that it can be kind of an aperture to use Ariana Cruz's language through which to view the politics of the cultural difference on an intimate level. So, you know, sexuality is a place where people work through all kinds of differences. And the BDSM world is a place that has always been attuned to that, attuned to the idea that male-female relationships are hierarchically structured just because of the way that culture works. And so how you think about a relationship with your girlfriend, if you're male, is going to be informed by the power differentials you occupy in culture and whether you Reproduce that in a very conscious way by having like a 1950s household, or you subvert it by being the kind of man who wants to be more, sub, you know, dominant in professional life but submissive at home, right? Like that—that that is always tied to culture. And as our understandings of power and culture change, so do the ways those understandings are imported into people's erotic lives. And so I think that there are all kinds of interesting ways. And and for this, you'll have to read the book to see really how people are doing that intimately.
2: And you know, zooming out, I know that you focus on America, but you obviously have conversations with your international colleagues. So what are the, some of the things that you've learned within those conversations of how we come to it with a different perspective?
1: Yes, of course. I mean, I think with regard to trans stuff, you know, the UK in particular is, is in a very similar political situation to the United States where you know medical care is being criminalized and doctors are losing their licenses and there's a virulent anti-trans feminist backlash. So that's a context that I know pretty well that I follow very closely. And I think that smaller versions of that are happening in Europe as well. I think it's, you know, different cultural contexts have very different things happening around all of these issues. But I do think that it's interesting to watch discourse from the United States bleed into other places. And I'm I'm not a you know an expert on any other cultural context but certainly you know when colleagues and I get together and talk it's we're often examining many more similarities than differences when it comes to you know political contexts around trans rights
2: and in closing as as you think about the future education trans experiences gender and sexuality difference and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation What are your hopes? What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember?
1: I think that my overall hope is that we as adults begin to focus more on how to really allow children with as much gentleness as possible to explore all the options for personhood that they could have at their disposal, to choose the one that makes being a human being in the world, which can feel so difficult at times, as easy as possible, and to know that they don't risk losing the people who love them because of how they decide to dress, talk about themselves, who they choose to love, when and how they want their bodies touched by someone else, right? That Those are the the intimate decisions that we each get to make so that we can live fully as individuals. And what it actually means to love somebody is to allow them to express the fullest version of whoever they are even if it's not the thing we most wish for them. And I think that everyone, I mean, I think my parents would say this, you know, having a a gay kid, that that is sometimes difficult, but also exactly the moment when you know how much you're loved by someone else, when they're able to empower you to live in a way that they don't understand. And that is certainly, those are the times that I feel the most loved by my parents, when they're confronting something that isn't comfortable for them but with a sense of openness and a belief in my capacity to build a good life for myself.
2: Thank you, Tay Meadow, for sharing your insights into a variety of trans experience, raising trans kids, and really helping us to come to a place of greater compassion, inclusion, and understanding. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and LGBTQ plus
0: stories. Thanks so much for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Béla Unger with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Béla Unger. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.